This is a Crossroads International Church podcast, bringing lives together. Please visit our website at xrds.nl for more information about us, our service times, and for other relevant resources. Greetings. Good morning, everybody. Uh, We are in a series... Uh, called Mythbusters, and what I wanted to do, um, I've taken two weeks um, in the middle of the series, and what I wanted to do was just to demystify a book of the Bible that of late, given our context, has been quoted so much, has been used so much, but sadly have come to discover it is uh, one of the most misunderstood, misused, misapplied books in the Bible. A Bible, a, a, a book of the Bible that many fear. And I wanted to say to you that in actual fact, if we understand and read this book correctly, if we apply a sound hermeneutic principle to this book, we come to discover, and of course I'm talking about the book of Revelation, uh, we come to discover that it is a book not to be feared, but to be loved. That it leaves us not with a message of fear, but with a message of freedom and hope and inspires us to, to loyalty and faithfulness and leaves us with a real sense of the power of the name of Jesus. So if you missed last week, I, I encourage you to go and have a look at it. I, I want to jump right into uh, part two of the book of Revelation. To some extent, we can understand why the book uh, is for many a struggle, because the book of Revelation spans three genres. It spans the genre of epistle, letter, uh, the prophetic prophecy, and it spans the genre of the uh, apocalyptic uh, type literature. And so because of that, I suppose we can understand why it is a struggle for so many. Um, And so we've looked at chapter 1, and here's what I've done is I've picked a few chapters, chapter 1 last week, today we're going to look at chapter 4 and 5, and then jump to chapter 17. I've picked the chapters that I believe is integral in understanding this book, that when when we, we understand these key shifts, these key moments in the book, chapter 1, 4, 5, 17, it will give us the tools and it will help us to really understand John's uh, message, his purpose, and his mission, and it will leave us with a real sense of what John is trying to do. And in chapter 4, we begin to again get that sense of what he's doing. What John is wanting to do in the book of Revelation, he wants to give us a Christological foundation from which we now use to understand and make sense of what's going on in the world around us, world events, to shape our worldview, who Jesus is, who we are, and our place and our mission in the world. And this is what John is wanting to do, and we see that clear shift in chapter 4, which is what we're going to look at today. But before I jump into chapter 4, I want to remind you that to help us make sense of this beautiful book, this quite exquisite book, which is full of symbolism and imagery, 
We need to be guided by sound hermeneutic principle. Now, I touched on it last week. Go and have a look at it. Um, but to just recap a little bit, especially because once we start moving to chapter 4, we begin to move into the genre of um, apocalyptic. And so we see a lot of images and symbolism. And so to help us interpret that, we need to have the sound hermeneutic principle. Now, uh, Dr. William Klein, a New Testament scholar, in his book, uh, Biblical, Biblical Interpretation, gives us some of these sound principles that should guide us, some of, whom I, uh, some of which I spoke about last week. Very quickly, here they are. Number one, and this ties in with what I said last week. You remember I mentioned last week that there are just over 400 verses uh, in the book of Revelation, yet there are over 500 Old Testament references. So Dr. Klein reminds us that if we want to make sense then, and this is logical, right? It, it, we can understand it. If we want to make sense of the imagery and symbolism of this book, we need to read them in light of the Old Testament. Seeing as there are over 500 references We should allow um, the Old Testament, read them in light of the Old Testament to help us then to extrapolate meaning and understanding from that perspective. The second thing I spoke to you about last week is we remember that the text cannot mean what it could not have meant for the original audience. So whatever conclusion I come to, it cannot mean something that it could not have meant to the original audience. And then thirdly, we're reminded by him that we uh, should always, as we seek to understand this book, seek to interpret it, always read it in light of the major uh, themes revealed to us in the rest of Scripture, such as Christ, the church, the kingdom of God, the battle between good and evil. And we use these major themes in Scripture to help us understand what is being said in the book of Revelation. And so these are some of the principles that guide us. And so from there, let's get into chapter 4, and uh, I'll wrap it up this week, and then we'll jump back into the rest of uh, the series, Busting Some Myths. So chapter 4, here we go. Now remember, chapter 1. John introduces, I want to reveal Jesus to you. So he begins by telling us who Jesus is, what he does, and as a consequence, as an extension of that, who we are and our mission here on earth. And then he talks to the churches in Asia Minor, those early followers of Jesus. And then in chapter 4, we see a big shift take place in the book. Big change. What John is doing is he's using, very cleverly, he's using a tool to help deliver his point, to help deliver his message of um, truth of who God is that will help us understand the world and what's going on in the world around us and also who we are to be in all of this. And so what he does is he taps into, here's what it, he taps into the worldview of the day, the way people understood the world to help deliver his message. And here is how his audience and the people of the time understood, made sense of these, uh, made sense of things. And it was this, that there for them is a, di they understood that there is a direct correlation between heaven and earth between what happens on earth and what is going on in heaven. So in other words, if I put it differently, so for something to have 
authority on earth, for something to have legitimacy on earth, for something to be really real on earth, it must have authority in heaven. It must have happened in heaven. It must have legitimacy in heaven. It must have authority in heaven. And it must be real in heaven. Only then is it really real. Legitimacy has authority, has power on earth. So what John does, so, so, so in other words, if it doesn't happen in heaven, then it's not really real here, right? That's the worldview. So he taps into that. So what he does in chapter 4, he says, right, given our context of his audience, we know what it is, oppression, persecution, suffering, follow Rome, Caesar is your savior, not Jesus, and you should bow to Caesar and not savior, and for those who do not comply with that, life was made very, very difficult. That's the context. So John says in chapter 4, right, let me take you into heaven. Let's see what the situation is like in heaven. What's going on there? Because that will help us understand. So in chapter 4, he takes his readers into heaven and he says, okay, let's see what we see there. And he begins by saying, I see a throne. So you can imagine how his audience is all excited. Like, okay, in heaven there's a throne. Okay, who's on it? What's happening? Who's on the throne? Because that's what's really real and that will help us make sense of the world. I see a throne, he says. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, he begins to explain. He says, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven. So imagine now his audience that they are hanging on his every word. He's like, okay, let's see who it is. With someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. So here we have images and symbolism. Jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Okay, so we use our first rule of hermeneutic interpretation, and we read it in light of what we know about the Old Testament. So now we jump, because you are all students of Scripture, so you know you need to go to Isaiah 54, don't you? That's right, so that's where we go. So we jump to Isaiah 54 with, oh, hang on a minute. God Almighty, Yahweh is described in Isaiah as these precious stones, jasper and ruby. Isn't it beautiful? So immediately now they know who's on the throne. At once I was spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The one sitting on there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Ah, we know who that is. It's Yahweh. I remember Isaiah. So now they know who's on the throne. God Almighty is on the throne. So if Yahweh is on the throne, who's not on the throne? Caesar. Well, now, hang on a minute. Message of hope and encouragement. So Caesar is not in power. He's not legitimate. He's not in control. He does not have authority. God, Yahweh, has authority. He's the one on the throne. Right? And then what does it say? A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So, when was the last time you remember anything about a rainbow in the Bible? We're following our principles of hermeneutic interpretation. When was the last time you happened anything about a rainbow? That's right, you've got it. 
the flood, the ark, God's promise of what? Survival. So here's what he's saying. Even in the flood of Roman oppression, God will save you. You'll be okay. Isn't that beautiful? Love it. Come on, people, you've got to love the Bible. This is so good, right? Oh, my goodness. Even in the flood of Roman oppression, you must know. So, so here's his message. Well, let me read you the next verse, and then we'll summarize it. So the next verse, okay. Yahweh's on the throne, Jasper Ruby. Rainbow, the promise of God. We will not drown no matter what we face. We will survive. Verse 5 says, And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Rules of interpretation, Old Testament. When was the last time you saw that? Of course, you know. It was Mount Sinai, Moses, the giving of the law. You remember the thunder and lightning? So what's John saying? He's saying three things. He wants his audience to know, facing difficult situations, difficult times, and the temptation is to, is to give up my faith because life will be so much easier if I just go with the flow. He's saying, listen, you must know. Yahweh is on the throne. As you find yourself in this difficulty, God is in control. He's on the throne, and that's what's really real. <laughs> Secondly, remember his promises to you. Remember the promises of God. Read his word and remember the things that he has promised to you. That no matter how bleak the situation is, no matter how much it's raining outside, <laughs> you won't drown. And then he says, because Yahweh is on the throne, because God is king, we should follow not the commandments and laws of the Roman Empire, Caesar, but you should live by the laws of the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Makes sense, right? So beautiful. Verse 6, next verse. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. A sea of glass. Calm, see, crystal clear. Okay, rules of interpretation. When was the last time? What makes it that? What do you think of? Jesus, the storm, calming the storm, walking on the sea of glass. Oh, my goodness. This is so good. So before the throne of God, the one who is really in control of your life, really in control of your destiny, Remember his promises. Live by his way, his laws, his instruction for your life. Not that of Caesar and the ways of the world, but live according to what he says. And they know that before the throne of God, and connecting it with Jesus, he calms the storm. In your life. So here's my application. The cross has calmed the chaos of verse 6. Isn't that lovely? The cross has calmed the chaos. Will you take that and make that your own? 
whatever chaos it is that you're facing today. It's the message of John. Think back. He wants his audience to know of Jesus calming the storm. No chaos can stand before the throne of God Almighty. Beautiful. Love it. And then he goes on to to keep making the point about who's in charge, who's in control of your life, of your destiny, of your future, the authority that God has. You think Rome has power? You think Rome has authority? And it's easy to think that. I mean, Rome ruled the world for hundreds of years with might and power. You think Rome has power? You think Rome has authority? He says, let me show you verses 7 to 10. You go and read it. I'll just summarize it. He then talks about um, animals. He talks about um, an ox and um, an eagle and a lion and all these things. What are those? Those are all Greek mythological gods, characters uh, that's even used, you know, for uh, star signs and all those things. And what happens there? They all bow down before the throne and the one who's on the throne, God Almighty. And he keeps making the point that there is no structure, there's no regime, there is no power, there is no government, there is nothing, no force, no power that can stand before God Almighty. Read this verse as they all bow down. And he's on the throne in your life. And of the things that goes on in your life. And he carries on. He talks about even, even the 24. He talks about now. So using our rules of interpretation, it is a fair assumption then to say that that could refer then to the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And he says even them bow down before the authority of God, God Almighty on the throne. And so he keeps making this point about how, how powerful God is and how, how, and how much authority he has that nothing and no one can stand before him. And what's the purpose? What's the goal? And what's the message for us? The purpose and goal is, is to give us hope, to give us encouragement that despite our struggle outside, despite what's going on in my life, it is supposed to encourage me and inspire me to absolute faithfulness and loyalty because he's on the throne. That's what's really real. To inspire me to what? Here's the thing. To not give up no matter how difficult it gets. And that is the application for us today. Church, you and I have a responsibility to now, to not give up because Yahweh is on the throne. No matter how tough things are, I will not give up because I am, that was a message to the church then. I am the church today. It is a message to the church today, to me, to you. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility just as those early followers of Jesus did not give up. And because they did not give up, you and I are sitting here today. You and I have a duty and an obligation and should be inspired by this book to hold firm to our faith and to not give up for the sake of our children and their children and their children that they have a church to go to. That's the message of life and hope. Do you get it? I hope you do. And then he ends there, verse 11. It's so beautiful. He goes after making his point. 
He's saying just as those first followers held hope in their heart, so you and I should live and hold hope in our hearts and not give up. He ends, he says, you, and then he, worship of God, he says, verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and power and honor for you created all things. It's so beautiful. Let's jump to chapter five. In chapter five, there is, for me anyway, a fundamental and profound shift that takes place in the book that we must grab hold of. And when we do, it will change how I see the world and how I engage with the world and how I see myself and how I should live my life. And that was, John did this quite intentionally. Because remember, they were facing a violent regime, did they not? And what is our natural inclination is to fight fire with Fire. If I want change, the natural inclination is to, is to revolt, is to agitate, is to, is to stand my ground, to punch you in the nose until you do what I want you to do. That's humanity's natural inclination. And so here's what he then says, and I can imagine... Imagine you're his original audience. You're facing this oppression. You're facing this persecution. And, and uh, I can imagine just, can we just, someone just give me a sword. Let me just teach somebody a lesson. Let me fix this wrong with some muscle. Okay, there's not, okay, never mind. <laughs> and so this happens. In chapter 5, verse 5, this this earthquake happens, as it were. I'll read it for you. So what happens is, so he's still, okay, so, so the one on the throne, Yahweh, is holding a scroll. About life. He's holding it. And then, but it's sealed. It says it's sealed with seven seals. What is that? We, I spoke about this last week. Seven, perfect, infinite, infinite perfection. So in other words, it's perfectly sealed. This scroll is perfectly sealed. There are no loopholes. There are no gaps here. It is perfectly sealed. And the one on the throne is holding it. And then an angel comes, a messenger says, but, but who can unlock it? Who can unseal this, this, this scroll? And others, who can give us life? Who's, who's going to fix this? Is the question. And John looks round in the heavens and the earth, and he finds no one worthy. And he weeps. He said, oh, we're in trouble. There's no one worthy to unlock the scroll of life that will change things. And then an elder comes. And in verse 5, he says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay. The lion, I get it. I'm liking this. This is great. Bring me my sword. Let's teach someone a lesson. Come the lion. And then verse 6. This 
this earthquake happens in the very next verse. What? Then I saw a lamb. What? Looking as if it had been slain. Yeah. Standing at the center of the throne encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. So again, we have the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? No ways. This cannot be. Verse 7. He went and took the scroll. Stop the bus. The lion I get. That's the way to deal with these Romans. That's the way to deal with those whose opinion is different from mine. It's the way to deal with those who do not agree with me the way of the lion. (laughs) But it's not the lion that unseals the scroll. It's the lamb. So we have this movement from the lion to the lamb. From militancy to mercy. (laughs) We get it. It casts our minds back to the book of Acts. You remember early in Acts, Jesus' disciples, right, Jesus, let's deal with these Romans. How are we going to fight them? How are we going to end this? Let's sort it out. Bring me. You remember Peter, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus arrested. What does he do? He pulls out his sword, the way of the lion. What does Jesus say? Put back that sword. It's consistent. And so they wanted a militant Messiah. What did they get? Someone on a donkey. (laughs) They wanted a lion. What did they get? The Lamb of God. A key, key movement. That which unlocks life, the key to life, is the Lamb and the way of the Lamb. Notice the Lamb, picture of a Lamb, one who is vulnerable and weak. Notice this Lamb, what does it say about it? This Lamb had seven horns, seven what? Perfect. Horns, we know, is what a symbol for what? Power. This lamb has perfect, not some power or a semblance of, or a form of, but perfect power. The way of the lamb is the way of perfect power. Seven eyes, seven what? Perfect eyes, vision. This lamb gets it. This lamb sees the way the world Sees the world in the way that it should be seen. This lamb sees what's going, in in your, going on in your life perfectly. This lamb sees what's going on in the world and the things that's going on in you perfectly. He gets it. This lamb takes the scroll and unlocks life. You want to know life? You want to know victory? 
The lamb is the key. The way of the lamb. The way of the spirit of the lamb is the key to unlocking life. Let me, let me interpret it for you in this way. What does it say? We're talking about how to read Scripture, how to, how to come to interpretation. We've always said um, that there is only one Jesus. So what we're implying is, would Jesus go along with my interpretation? What does this say? Here's the application. It says, always let the Lamb unlock the Word of God for you, not the lie. So how would the Lamb... How would your interpretation of Scripture stack up to the way of the Lamb? In other words, there is no room to interpret the book of Revelation to justify violence of any kind, or holy war, or just war. We do not have that scope, for it is the Lamb that takes the scroll. Here's my takeaway for you. Friends, whatever it is that you are facing today, whatever it is that is causing you anxiety and fear, the key to unlocking life in that area is not might, and power, or agitation, or force. But it's the Lamb, and the way of the Lamb, the Spirit of Lamb, the Spirit of God. My next series is Fruits of the Spirit, so by the way. That's the key, is the way of the Spirit, which is what? It's love, it's patience, it's peace, it's kindness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. That's the key to unlocking life. I'll wrap it up. Can you see what John's message is to the people? The way you're going to defeat this kingdom is not with sword or spear, but to love your enemy. Did Jesus not say, I send you as what? Among wolves? Sheep. He did not say, I send you as wolves among the wolves. I send you as sheep among the wolves. Let me wrap it up. Let's jump to chapter 17. So he's saying to them, those who read his letter, the way to defeat this kingdom is not to fight fire with fire, but to love your enemy, to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to be patient, to be kind, to embrace. The way of the lamb unlocks the scroll. And then in verse 17, because now I can, I can just hear the rumbling. I can hear the questions in the mind. Okay, well, how are they going to then be defeated? 
If I can't fight them with my sword, Jesus, and I've just got to smile and love them and give them a flower. <laughs> well then, how's this going to end? Chapter 17. We read this incredible verse, which we all really know and understand. But here's what it says <clears throat> in verse 16. So let me just help you quickly understand. So John and his audience had nicknames for Rome. Um, they called Rome <clears throat> a whore, a prostitute. So when you read that, in the, it's talking about Rome. It called Rome a, a beast, a dragon, Babylon. Easy nicknames to understand, actually. Babylon, because remember, many, many years before, it was Babylon who took the, the ancestors into captivity and oppressed them. Rome is doing the same to us. A prostitute, a whore, as it says um, in some of the other translations, as easy to understand, uh, is seductive. The regime is seductive. It will lure you, it will seduce you to, to, to become one with it. It will seduce you to get into bed with it. Power and might and money is, is seductive. And when you don't fall for its seduction, then it will seek to threaten you and intimidate you and use violence against you, the beast, the dragon. Okay, so now, you see, now read. 17 verse 16, because you know this now. The beast, Rome, and the ten horns, horns, I already told you, right? Power. Ten, uh, it symbolizes the ten hills, the mountains and hills that the Roman Empire was built on around Rome. And you can look, they've got names, the Palatine, the Aventine, um, the uh, Capitoline, the Esquiline, they all had names, Right? So the beast, Rome, and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. What? Rome will hate Rome? Hmm. They will bring her to ruin, it says, and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What's he saying? Interesting to me, however, that it's not God in that direct sense burning down Rome, destroying Rome. Rome will self-destruct. We know this. You see, because money wants more money. Power wants more power. And so, therefore, because under the worldview, everything is for sale. Love, justice, selfishness, lust. It, 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 it feeds on itself. It consumes itself. It conspires against itself. And people get stabbed in the back. It's all about self-destruction here. We understand that it self-destructs because of the victory of Jesus on the cross. Let's, right, we get that. We understand that. His message is, and here is the message for you and me, the lamb always wins. The way of the lamb wins. Evil will consume itself. 
it digs its own grave. The way of the lamb wins. Okay, I'm done. Maybe I'll end with a little story for you. You remember the Velvet Revolution of Eastern Europe, 1980s, 89, towards the end of 1980s, um, as the communist regimes are falling one after the other. You remember? Um, uh, what happened to the church was, in, in most times, churches could exist, uh, but they were not allowed to, to promote themselves. They're not allowed to advertise. They couldn't have church notice boards on, um, on the outside to promote themselves in any way. And so in Prague, there was this little Methodist church. True story. You can go look it up. There was this little Methodist church, and as part of this velvet revolution, they said, right, on this particular day, 12 o'clock, we're going to ring the bells, and all the people will come into the streets. You know history. You know this. Right? Right? Um, they come into the streets as a silent protest, the way of the Lamb. <laughs> and so this pastor of this little Methodist church said, right, I'm not just going to ring the bell, because now the church notice board on the outside had been overgrown, and he cut back all the weeds and the things, and he thought, I'm, he's going to dust it off, and it was all, you know, old, and he thought, I'm going to repaint it, and I'm going to open it up on this day. Now, you know what's traditionally on church notice boards, you know, the times of the service, who the preacher is, whatever. And he wrote three words on the church notice board that day, 1989. You know what three words he wrote? And this is God's word to you and me today. He wrote, the lamb wins. Amen. Amen.